morning. If you have your Bibles, get those open right there to 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you do not have a Bible, there's a black one in the seat back in front of you. It's be on page 1056. You can follow along with us there and I'd like to join in with Brandon and all of us and wishing all of you happy Mother's Day out there. And uh, we know that holidays are a magnifier of emotions, right? And so if today is a day of honor and celebration for you, what I know is that joy is felt more completely in Jesus. And today is a day of, of grief or difficulty for you. What I know is that hope is found in Jesus. And so uh, we are thankful for the opportunity to open up his word, uh, to, to reflect on him a little bit more, worship him. And so uh, we're grateful for that chance and just, uh, just know we're with you. Uh, wherever you're at, and, and more importantly, Christ is with you. And so uh, I'm going to ask you uh, to, to make sure you're open to 2 Timothy chapter 2. I want to welcome each and every one of you who are here. If you're guests, especially welcome to you. Uh, we know how hard it is to try something new, and so we have a gift for you. Uh, if you want to stop by our welcome desk, we have something for you for, for trying us out today, and we're grateful for that. And I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer before we launch into this message. So let's pray. Father, we are thankful uh, for your good design for human flourishing, God. We're thankful for, um, for the design of motherhood and, and for all uh, who are given a go uh, based on your grace and mercy. And Lord, we're, we're, we're grateful for all that. And, and, and Lord, we're even more thankful for Jesus, for his word, uh, for your spirit, for your truth, and the chance we get to, to look into uh, that word right now. And so I just pray that you'll continue what you already started in the time of worship, that you'll continue to move, you'll continue to speak uh, God, that you would shove life and the distractions of life and the worries of life out of the way and that you would just move most clearly now. God, would you uh, get the glory from all this? And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. I don't know how much of you are up to date on uh, South American history, but at the turn of the 20th century, uh, the countries of Chile and Argentina were on the brink of war. And most of their dispute was all about where their border was going to be drawn. And it got pretty tense, right? It got very serious uh, to the point where it just seemed like war was going to be inevitable. And so people in both countries were just preparing themselves for this reality and all the suffering that would come from it. But church leaders in both nations began crying out and trying to intervene, saying, we, we can't go to war for something this silly. And so eventually in 1902, a diplomatic peace agreement was reached in which both Chile and Argentina said, all right, we will not go to war with this. We'll agree to this. And to celebrate this at the request of a bishop, they hired a sculptor by the name of Matteo Alonso to erect a seven-meter-high bronze statue to sit atop a six-meter granite pedestal, and the statue was to be of Jesus. And it was going to be placed at the highest point in the mountains, right on the border between Chile and Argentina, and it was to be a permanent sign of their covenant of peace to one another. You would actually have to walk by Jesus in order to start a fight, right? And so this was going to be the thing that would just be the thing of peace, and Right after it was finished, you must remember that tensions were still high between the two countries, and the statue itself became the new thing to fight over, because the Chileans felt they had been slighted because the statue faced Argentina, and so Jesus has his back to Chile, right? And so this became a huge thing, and believe it or not, this, this became the next thing that put them on the brink of war. Tensions were rising, and the plan was about to fail in the most ironic way possible, until there's a columnist in a Chilean newspaper who used humor to diffuse the situation and restore peace. In a widely published editorial, he basically told his fellow Chileans just to chill out. After all, he said, the people of Argentina need more watching over than us Chileans. And that actually worked. Just like that, a tense situation was diffused. And by the way, the statue's still there. If you wanted, you could 
fly down to South, I don't know why you'd want to, but if you wanted, you could fly down to South America and go look at it now, and the countries are still at peace. You see, it's impossible to go through this life without disagreement. I mean, think about it. God created us in his image, which means part of that is he gave us a will. He gave us the ability to make choices. And so we have opinions, right? We view things through our own lenses. There's no way that everybody else will agree with us on everything at all times. And this is even more true, I would argue, for the follower of Jesus. Right, just to be frank, I mean, think about what we did the whole month uh, around Easter. We spent an entire month in a sermon series going over the exclusivity and supremacy of Jesus. Right, the Bible tells us that he is better, that he's greater, that he's more powerful, he's more influential than anyone. The series was titled No Other Name because there's no other name given to us by which we can be saved and spend an eternity in heaven. Jesus Christ is it. Now, surely you must know, though, that there are people who not only disagree with us on that, but don't like it when we state it. And surely you've noticed how unpopular, how uncelebrated, and in some circles even hated it is to be a Christian in our current climate. Now you add to that a belief in the authority of God's word, you add into that a conviction that his design is what is best for human flourishing, and applause and agreement dwindle even more. So what do we do? Do we freak out? Do we live in panic? Do we live in fear? Do we fight everyone and everything? Do we become the morality police for society? Do we share every opinion that we have? Do we retreat in silence and hide away in bunkers? Or do the scriptures actually give us some guidance in this? Where we can influence without stoking division, where with gentleness we can be in disagreement with others without being at war with them. This is the better way. But it requires for us a deep trust in the ability and character of God. And it requires of us a deep affection for others and an affection for Jesus himself. And today in our passage in 2 Timothy, we're going to see Paul encourage Timothy to do these very things to the group of people who are actively opposing him. And so I'm going to invite Paul Lacey up to read today's passage to you. He's going to be reading 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 23 through 26. And if you're physically capable, would you please stand with him to honor the reading of God's word? Good morning, Paul. Thank you, Paul. You guys can have a seat. Keep your Bibles open there to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And I'm going to remind you, as I do every week, to the point where I hope you get sick of it and can just say this, uh, just understand the context on your own. But remember, this is a letter, right, from the Apostle Paul to Timothy. Timothy is serving as uh, the pastor, lead elder of a church in Ephesus. And the reason he's there, because Paul and Timothy traveled to Ephesus and could not believe in how terrible a shape the church was in. And so Paul didn't feel right about just leaving it behind. He put Timothy in that post to fix it and correct it and rebuild the church. And starting in verse 14 of chapter 2, right, he's, this entire section, the, sac, the second half of chapter 2 in this letter that we've been going through, has been all about dealing with difficult people. It's all about dealing with the people in Timothy's life that are opposing him, that are uh, attacking him, that are trying to get him off message and off mission and, and, and into lesser things. And so throughout it, we've seen repeated advice, right? Verse 16, he is to not engage at all, 
with those who promote irreverent empty speech. Verse 19, he's to turn away from the wickedness that's being promoted. Verse 22, uh, verse we looked at last week, he's to flee youthful passions or flee the desire to engage in every debate and every battle that's out there. All right, so all these kind of battle lines have been drawn, battle lines have been drawn, and I, so it's not surprising to me at all how Paul kind of ends this section in chapter 2. After drawing all those lines, here's how he ends. The first was a flashback to last week. In verse 22, he tells Timothy what to pursue. And basically, the, the command is this, to reignite your passion for the Lord. Because opposition can drain you. I had several of you admit to me in this last week that you felt drained recently. And so I'm thankful to the Lord that, that we felt his challenge us to, to reignite our affection and pursuit of him. And the second thing, which is in today's verses, is, Tim, is Paul closed the section telling Timothy, don't give up on anyone. Despite the opposition you're facing, despite everything that's going on, don't give up on anyone because people matter to God. And so yes, don't engage in ways that will get you off mission, but you stay faithful to the truth and grace that is in Jesus Christ. Don't write people off. Instead, keep pointing them to Christ. And in these verses, Paul tells Timothy how to walk that balance. How to stay on mission without getting taken off and how to be faithful to what God has called him to when there are people who oppose him. And the first thing he tells him is basically just to avoid lose-lose situations. I look at verse 23. He says, reject foolish and ignorant disputes because you know that they breed quarrels. Now, this matches a lot of what we've already seen in the chapter, right? Just don't engage. I don't have anything to do with disputes or quarrels or arguments over things, especially foolish and ignorant things. Just keep the focus on what really matters. And you might be thinking, all right, we've heard this three, four, five times now. What are these disputes that Paul keeps talking about? What are foolish and ignorant disputes? What are these quarrels, right? And so I would say there's at least two categories of this. There's probably way more, but two for sure. And the first category is this. It's just things that aren't of ultimate importance. And so, for example, for a Christian, there are things that don't impact the gospel, There are things that don't impact the supremacy of Jesus. There are things that don't impact people's eternal standing. And so these these are lesser matters where disagreement can be had and should not impact unity or fellowship at all. And we shouldn't be trying to run around and correct everybody to agree with us on them, right? Secondly, is any time that both sides have dug in. And I think you understand what I mean by that. When, When people have dug in, most often, if you've noticed this, most often when two people debate something, all that happens is they get more entrenched in their side. But even a normal conversation, we're all smart enough to read if someone's influential and genuinely asking questions or if they've dug in and just want to fight. And so even when the topic is important, right, if each side is just talking over each other and not listening to one another or just listening enough to be, figure out how I'm going to come back to what you just said, it, at that moment, it's best just to keep peace and call it a day. Gemma is playing, Gemma, our 10-year-old, she's playing soccer this spring, and her coach started a text chain for all the parents. So we know when the games, if the games got canceled or practice got moved, we could all know right away. And a couple weeks ago, her team won their first game of the season. And so the coach sent out what he thought would be a harmless, well-intended, congratulatory text to all the parents. Right? Hey, got our first win today. Tell the kids good job. And so as you might expect, some of the parents replied, yay, way to go, kids, and all this stuff. And then one parent sent a gif. Right, GIF, however you want to pronounce it. If you don't know what this is, it's an animated picture, okay? And in this, right, in this GIF, what it was was an animated, muscular, shirtless Donald Trump 
with an American flag in one hand and an automatic rifle in the other, and it just kept flashing MAGA over and over and over again. Now, what it had to do with children's soccer, I have no idea, right? But it was celebratory, I guess, right? But instead of just laughing it off, right, or just being like, that's weird, one parent couldn't do it. They just couldn't let it go. And so what came back was this really passive-aggressive, I sure hope that was not intended for our all-caps soccer group. So what do you think happened next? The Trumper sent that gift not one more time, not two more times, but three more times to the whole group. Now, from a mere comedic standpoint, a big part of me appreciated that a little too much, right? I laughed hysterically as a detached bystander. But you know what? You know what the sad part is, those two parents? They're never going to have a real conversation about anything. Ever. Because they have now decided all they need to know about each other. The lines have been drawn. They've already emptied the chamber. And so as followers of Jesus, we must learn this. We can't empty the chamber on small, lesser things. Because at that point, we've already lost. We've given our influence to something that's not of greater importance. And, and we need to hear this because the world tells us all the time that our opinion matters more than anything. That truth is not only something that I can possess, but I am, I am convicted, I am encouraged to speak my truth. That, that influence is something that we should be pursuing at all costs and grasping by any means necessary and using it for ourselves. But you know why that doesn't make any sense at all? Do you know the world population is estimated now to be above 7.9 billion people? So we're approaching 8 billion people on the planet. Do you want to know what your opinion represents then? What you think represents one eight billionth of what the world thinks. And in the face of this, there's Jesus Christ. Standing alone saying, by the way, this life is not about you. That your opinion is not what carries the day. The truth is not found in you. The life is found when you give it up. Influence that matters is influence that's been granted to you by my Father, and you do not use it for yourself, but you use it as an ambassador for Jesus Christ. Despite it being cold and rainy pretty much every day this spring, we've been trying to get our garden going, and, and our twin four-year-olds, they just want to be out there, right? They, when we're out there, they want to be out there, and often they're, they're playing in the dirt or grabbing tools. Basically, if there's anything that's both cute and makes what you're doing a thousand times harder, that's what they're about, Right? And so their favorite part so far is watering. That whenever we plant a seed or plant a plant, they they love watering it, but they can't carry the big watering can because it's almost as tall as they are. And so they have this little one and they really want to do it, but it makes it so much harder because they empty their bucket so fast, right? First you fill their bucket and then they spill three quarters of it in the way there and then they pour out one plant and then the the water's all gone and then they cry because they have no more water and you got to repeat the whole process over and over again. Listen, we all get a bucket of influence. And for all of us, it's smaller than we'd wish. And the question is, are we emptying it on things that are worthwhile? Or is there some non-gospel related cause or mission or opinion that you're just fighting a little too hard for? Because your influence is not limitless. At some point, we've poured it all out and we don't get a refill. And so have you used it for the greatest things? Secondly, he tells Timothy to not fight with the world's tools. Man, we we don't live in a world where everyone agrees with us. Now, we have the truth. Okay, I don't mean that as an arrogant statement. I mean it as a faith-filled one. But there's lots of people who don't want the truth or don't agree with our truth. And so you got to remember, in Timothy's day, the disagreement cost a whole lot more than it does for us. 
Do I need to remind you where Paul is writing this letter from? He's in custody. He's in chains, awaiting an execution that is going to come. And so when he tells Timothy in chapter 1 and verse 8 of this letter to share in the suffering for the gospel, he doesn't mean that somebody might think less of you or somebody might disagree with you. He means share in actual physical suffering because that was his historical context. And yet despite that culture and despite the intense persecution of the, church, of the early church, we have in the Bible only one occasion of a follower of Jesus taking out a sword to fight back. Do you remember what that was? John 18, they're in the garden the night before the cross. Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. A servant's name was Malchus. And listen to how Jesus responds. At that, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? You understand what's happening in that scenario? Jesus is being betrayed. Jesus is being arrested. And just a few hours earlier, Peter had sworn in front of everyone that he is willing to die for Jesus that he would fight to the bitter end for Jesus, and he backs it up. He puts his money where his mouth is. He wasn't aiming for the ear, by the way. If you cut off an ear, you're trying to cut off a head. He's ready to roll. He's ready to die, and Jesus shuts him down immediately and says, this is not what we're going to be about. Paul is writing this letter. Here's what we're told. Here's what he tells us about his own biography in 2 Corinthians 11. He says this. He says, five times I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brothers. Toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold, and without clothing." If you read through the book of Acts, you know this is Paul's life. This is the pattern. He would travel into a city, he would share the gospel there, and eventually someone would try to kill him. And he'd be beaten or be arrested, barely escape alive, and he'd go to the next city and be like, that was fun, let's try that again. And he'd repeat that process again and again and again and again. Early on in Acts, we see the apostles beaten and flogged and jailed. Stephen is killed and widespread persecution hits the church. That is the historical context in which Timothy finds himself in Ephesus with people opposing him and disagreeing him. And yet listen again to what he's told in verse 24. The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach, and patient. Christ's servant must not quarrel or argue, and not just with those who aren't arguing with him, but those who are trying to start an argument with him. He must be gentle to everyone, and not just those who are being gentle to him, but those who are actively opposing him. He must be able to teach. Now, as a shepherd and elder, this would be huge for Timothy, part of his requirement. But for all Christians, you know what the standard is? Here's the standard, 1 Peter chapter 3. That in your hearts you regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Ready at any time to give a defense, to give a reason for the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. And lastly, the Lord's servant is patient. Timothy didn't need to feel the pressure of changing anyone's mind in two minutes or less. He didn't need to be afraid of their questions because at least they were still engaging. He needed to be okay with someone having a journey to Christ and a journey to truth. This could take more time than you would think. 
And given the historical context, given that they're literally being beaten, arrested, killed, and jailed, you might think that this advice, this command to be patient and gentle and calm would be weird and illogical. But here's three reasons why it makes all the sense in the world. Number one, the truth was on their side. There's an old saying I love. If the facts are on your side, pound the facts. If you don't have the facts, pound the table. It means, and we, by the way, you see that a lot in our world, right? It means that if the truth is on your side, then gentleness and calmness and peace and patience should be yours. No reason to get worked up. Jesus Christ is going to be revealed to all as the Lord of all the universe. And if you're pointing people to him, you're expressing trust in him, you're riding with him, you win in the end. And you don't need their agreement to validate his greatness. He's great regardless. Secondly, the goal is to win the person, not the argument. You can flip those. By the way, I could take you to YouTube videos right now of Christians debating people and flipping those. Where they might have won the argument, they lost the person. Paul's answer to that is don't argue. Respond with gentleness. Respond with patience. Give them a taste of what Christ can do in someone's life and the difference that he can make. And then thirdly, you're not on trial. You are not on trial. Here's what 1 Peter 2 tells us. Honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone and a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. That is the Bible telling us what's undeniable, that it's Jesus Christ who is the dividing line. It's Jesus and for those of us who believe in him, he is our cornerstone. He's our foundation of our faith. And that, that we will not be put to shame and honor will come to us for believing him. But for those who don't, that cornerstone, that foundation becomes a stumbling block. That Jesus is the one they trip over. Jesus is the one they are rejecting. And by the way, he's more than capable of handling it. He is currently holding all creation together by his power. He walked out of his grave. He is enthroned at the right hand of the Father, and every knee will bow before him, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And so he's not sitting in heaven watching you having a conversation with someone and stressing about whether or not you can talk to them into agreeing with him. He's not saying, oh, man, I hope Brett says the right thing here, as if he's powerless in the situation, because I can assure you he is not. Because listen to what Paul tells Timothy next. He tells him, don't forget the God factor. That when you're dealing with people who disagree with us or don't believe as we do, there are levels to this that we cannot fathom and cannot see. There is spiritual warfare going on for the souls. That's why he mentions in verse 26 that they are under the trap of the devil. And don't miss the language in verse 25 that perhaps God, not Timothy, perhaps God will grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of truth. You know what the number one reason people give for not sharing their faith? It's fear. And both of those, both avenues of fear are answered in this passage, right? The fear of rejection, they aren't rejecting you. You weren't on trial. And the fear that they won't agree with you, it wasn't up to you anyways. God is the one who draws people to himself. God is the one who saves souls. It is an act of unbelievable grace and mercy that he invites us to join him in that mission, but he never expects us or wants us to take on the full weight of that mission ourselves. If you find yourself in despair thinking, how do I, how do I save someone? How do I save this world? God would say, you can't. Why are you worked up about it? But I'm constantly at work, and I'm constantly drawing people to myself. 
which is why my prayer about FBN is often this, why not here, Lord? Because what I know about him is this, that he is bringing new life and he is building his kingdom at all times. So why not us? Why not just use this place and these people for your glory? We want to see him do what he is constantly doing. So the burden to change culture or to bring into line every single false teacher or to save the souls of all who disagree with him, these burdens did not fall on Timothy's shoulders. In fact, the very reason that he could walk with gentleness and patience and peace is precisely because it's not on him. His job was to be faithful to what God had called him to. His job was to keep offering the hope, love, peace, and goodness of Christ. His job was to lead by example and keep the main thing the main thing. His job was to pray for God to move, pray for God to change hearts, pray for God to open portals of repentance, and then let God do what he does. Do you know how freeing that should be for all of us? All you parents who are worried about your kids, all you grandparents, all you group leaders and ministry leaders and members and coaches and teachers, any of you who have a burden for a lost friend or family member, it does not rise and fall on you to save them. It does not rise and fall on you to protect them from the evils of this world or the enemy. You cannot, by your power and might, stand between them and the influence of culture, the hold of the devil. You can't do it. But you know what the great news is? You know the one who can. You know the one who can, and he wants it more than you do. And so you go to war on their behalf by praying for them. You lead them with gentleness and respect, and you influence them towards Christ because we know that God will fight these battles for us. And he never wants or expects us to take his place. Now, these are great instructions for Timothy in his context. So how do we apply them in ours, right? There's three things I want to humbly suggest that you consider. Number one is this, just to take an influence inventory. You only get so much influence in this life. Now, we talked last week about how it is that you can earn more. You earn influence in others' lives by showing them how much you care for them, by loving them, by, by serving them. But you know how you don't increase influence? You don't increase influence over others by always positioning yourself as someone with influence over them. If you're always correcting, you're always talking down, you're always approaching from above them, that's a great way to burn through influence really quickly. So just some questions I'd love for you to ponder as you take inventory of the influence in your life. And the, and the first is this. Are you earning your influence with others? Are you just assuming that it's your right to have it? Secondly, when you try to yield influence, do you do it from a place of humility and care? Or do you always come at it from a place of superiority? You get a finite amount of influence in this life. And so what are you using yours on? Is it time that there's an opinion of yours or a cause of yours that just doesn't need expressed or challenged or fought for anymore? By the way, you should know a sign of growing in the grace of Christ is that you don't feel the need to form an opinion on every topic out there and you don't, need, you don't feel a need to express the ones you do form. It's a sign of growing in grace. And then just the question based on 1 Peter, are you able to teach and influence others toward Christ? Can you actually give a reason for the hope that you have in him? And to grow in this, man, I would encourage you so strongly to get in this word. Get in this word in your own time and then definitely join a group where you can ask questions, you can read it together, where you can sharpen up your confidence in what you believe and deepen your affection for Christ and others together with others. 
so that you would be able to more and more give a reason for the hope that you have in Jesus. Secondly, fight with the weapons we've been given by God. First, identify who it is that you have a desire to influence for good. It could be your child, it could be your friend, it could be your coworker, it could be your neighbor, it could be multiple people. Once you have that, engage in spiritual warfare. Take their name to the throne of grace repeatedly. Call on God to fight for them. May God hear you saying their name to him over and over and over in prayer. Dads and moms, grandma and grandpa leaders, this is not just our calling, this is our privilege. This is our privilege. And then second, the best way to point people to a deeper affection for Christ is by developing your own affection for him. Because of what I know to be true about human nature is that we're always more apt to want others to have what we truly love. We're always more apt to want others to have what we truly love. It's, it's why, despite billions upon billions of dollars being spent every year on advertising, all advertising firms will admit that word of mouth remains the most effective. A human being saying, this thing is awesome, I enjoyed it, you should do it, is far greater than all the rest. Because we share what we love and we share what we cherish. And so if you aren't serving his church and you aren't sharing his hope and you aren't telling others how much Christ can change their lives, these are all warning signs for us telling us that we don't love him like he should, like we should and he deserves. And by the way, you want to know how to increase your affection for him? A really good way to love him more is simply by just starting by resting in the goodness of our king. Listen, a desire to influence others is a good thing. Think about it, we're we're called in the scriptures to be Christ's ambassadors. We're called by Jesus himself to be his witnesses. To influence others towards him and his ways is a desire that is given to us by God himself. It's fueled by the Holy Spirit. And so that desire is a good thing. It is a healthy thing. But carrying the full weight of that influence as if it's on you, it's not good. It's not healthy. It's not healthy for those you want to influence and it's not healthy for you. And so use your burden for others to take them to our good, loving, powerful, almighty, gracious, capable king. And never forget that he's at work. He is in your children's lives. He's in your friends' lives. He is in your family's life. He's in your enemy's life. He has not abandoned them. He's at work even if it doesn't feel like it. He's at work even if you can't see it. Because there are no lost causes with God. Because God loves us more than we love ourselves. ourselves. He loves our children more than we love our children. Anybody that we have a burden for, anybody that we hope to influence, he has a greater burden for them and cares for them more deeply than we care for them. And he is always at work, even when you cannot see it. And so believe that and cling to that. Remind yourself of that. Find your hope and peace in that. Rest in his sovereignty. Rest in his power and trust in him. Because even though you cannot release people from the traps of the devil, no matter how much you want to, he can. He does it all the time. And his timing is always perfect when he does. So praise him. Draw close to him. Unload your burdens on him. Unload your people onto him. Tell him you're ready and willing to be used however he sees fit. But instead of trying to take his place, find your rest and affection and treasure in the goodness and grace of our Jesus. Because in Jesus, we have the truth. In Jesus, we have the hope. In Jesus, we have confidence. In Jesus, we have a solution to all death and loss and suffering. He made a way when we had no way. He was our hope when we had no hope. He is our salvation when what we deserve is hell. That is what he does. That is what he's still doing at this moment. And it's what he will always do until he returns.
And so the greatest way that we could ever maximize our influence is by joining up with him. Not taking his place, but joining up with him and resting in the truth of who he is. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful that in the face of great adversity, the face of great opposition, Timothy was not told to fight harder. In the face of great opposition, he wasn't told to get panicked. In the face of great opposition, he wasn't told that the solution was him. He was, ta- he was called to gentleness. He was called to respect. He was called to spiritual warfare, trusting that you were at work. Trusting that you would be the one that brings people to repentance, that you would be the one that brings people to truth. You would be the one that changes lives. And so I pray that around this room now, God, you would put names, you put faces in our hearts and our minds of people that you've put in our life to give us that burden of influence. People that we want, desperately desire for them to have more of you whether it's salvation, whether it's they've gone wayward, whether we're concerned about their future, the trends, their own decisions they're making. God, people that we want desperately to have more of you, and I pray that we will engage the way you've told us to engage. That we would lead with humility, that we would lead with respect, that we would lead with gentleness, that we would be faithful to the truth that is in Jesus Christ, and we would take those people to you again and again and again, inviting you to move mightily and powerfully in their lives. Because you are the one that changes lives. You are the one that saves souls. You are the one that does what we are powerless to do. So Lord, hear names lifted up all around this room this morning. Hear the cry of hearts. Hear the burden of parents and grandparents. Hear the concerns of friends and neighbors. Hear the concerns of coworkers. Hear those burdens, God, and then move in a way that brings people to you. And we ask this all in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Before we dismiss you today, we're going to give you a chance just to do just that. We'll give you time of prayer this morning to just identify who it is that God has put in your life that you have a burden for, that you have a conviction for, that you want to see influence for Jesus. And we're going to ask you to use this time just to pray for them specifically that God would move in their lives. And so this is your time with him.